Hi, black people. Did you ever wonder why some white people have become your allies in the fight against white privilege and are helping you in your attempts to repair past injustices? Well, it's because they despise you and don't care if you have unhappy lives as long as they feel good about themselves. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is Rivals. Yes, black people, in the news media, on college campuses, in government, and all the other bastions of insincerity and self-aggrandizement across America, you can find white allies, pinkishly colored cretinous gumbies wearing frowny faces to show you just how much they mind their white privilege. These gormless numpty-tumps want to tilt the playing field of life in your favor because they look down on you and want to feel virtuous while making sure you won't be able to compete with them or their children. Think about it logically. Well, pretend you're not a Democrat. Now think logically. If these stinky cheese chuckleheads respected you as equals, they would expect you to compete against their own best efforts in spite of any residual bigotry, just as every other race has done in American history. Instead, white allies condescend to you as if you were cripples or children, not because they're hypocritical racists. Oh no, wait, that is why, sorry. White allies pay elaborate respect to destructive groups like Black Lives Matter and blithering posers like Cornel West, and by elevating these individual whiners to success, they ensure the failure of all the black people who follow them. BLM and West use murky, racist generalizations to suggest that people of color are helplessly crushed beneath white oppression in modern America, and therefore require entitlements and special race-based treatment in order to compete. Such seemingly charitable solutions allow white allies to feel compassionate while blacks descend into continual dependency, perpetual outrage, and perennial bitterness, a certain recipe for a crap life. That America is a place where all things are possible. That is some group of people, thousands. Described as a demon. I hate you. Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back, welcome back. It is Profane Faith. Look at this, we into November, y'all. I'm telling y'all, we in November. And here in Chicago, at this time of the year, and I know podcasts are on demand and everything, so you may be listening to this in the summer. You may just be listening to Profane Faith, and we've been on for a couple of years now. (laughs) But at the time of this recording, um, y'all, it is getting cold. In fact, the other day, it said snow. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be flurries. It's going to be just... You know, some some whatever. Just, you know, it's not going to be no like snow, snow. It just said it was going to be, you know, I just thought it was going to be like some some flurries, you know. Man, I get out there. So I see it coming down. I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is cool. This is live. It's kicking. I'm with that. And it actually turns into snow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Of, Of all things, right? And it's just that time of year where the weather's changing and... Um, yeah, the, the temperatures are dropping out. It felt like winter the other week. Now it popped back up and we're back in the forties, but still, y'all, I mean, 
boy with California blood in the man. I'm just like, woo. Um, it's, it's, it gets rough. So you're going to hear me talking about the weather, um, on this, on the show, uh, as we head into the winter months, because, uh, yo, man, I got layers. I got my beanie. I got my gloves. I was like, gosh, dogs, man, I had my snow boots on and everything. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. I'm telling you, I know some of you guys are thinking, man, how did you even move there? Look, Hey, Chicago, this is where the work was. So <laughs> brother had to get his work on, all right, y'all. Well, this is the um, this is if you're just joining in. Um, first, thank you, thank you for listening, thank you for joining in. Uh, I always recommend folks to go back to episode zero zero to check out um, what the podcast is about. But if you've been a faithful listener, you already know what this is about. And last week, uh, we're coming off. Uh, my wife Emily White Hodge is talking about being a white ally, and this week. We have uh, another guest that is no less uh, on point, Khaled Keith Perry. And this brother right here, I met at AAR. Um, I meet a lot of good people at AAR. I'm telling you, in fact, it's coming up this next weekend. We're going to be doing some, uh, some, hopefully, some live podcasting from there. We'll see. We'll see what's up. But Khaled is... Um, He's a scholar. He's an author. He is a uh, an artist. He's a big, 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 big advocate for arts, particularly in higher ed. And um, his work primarily focuses on the development of a public theology of public education. Though he also juggles a number of side products, projects, including research on practices of discernment, as well as creative and aesthetically grounded approaches to adult religious education. That's some crazy stuff, but it's some crazy good stuff because uh, Khaled is on our show, and uh, like I said, we met. He's reached out to me. He does a whole bunch of other podcasts as well, and I wanted to get him on because I thought this was a great conversation to have, uh, another one along the lines of white allyship from a white male and somebody who I believe is really is an ally. I do believe that. I do believe he's he is someone in our corner and someone who is trying to fight as best he can. And I, I wanted to have a conversation around that. I wanted to have a conversation around theology. I wanted to have a conversation about theopoetics, uh, his work that he's doing. And I just really enjoyed it. And so I wanted to pass that along. And so we're going to do that conversation. And so what, and one of the, one of the things I got last week, uh, cause my wife and I were listening to the episode and we were uh, celebrating our anniversary and she was just like, you know, can I give you a little something critique? And I was like, Oh, Oh, man, you know how it is. You know what I'm saying? As an artist, oh man, I tell you, it uh, it can sting sometimes. You know, get a little little feedback, especially from people that you know are gonna tell you the truth, right? It's like, oh man, I'm like, man, I'm like Erica Badu, man. It's like, man, I'm sensitive, right? So, anyways, I was like, you know what? Yes, I need to hear it. And she was like, you need to shorten your introductions. <laughs> it just keeps going on and on and on. So I could see some people out there right saying, yes, Emily, tell them. So I'm shortening them up. Um, just a brief intro here to Khaled. I think, uh, again, I gave you some overview. I'm going to post some of his links uh, in the show notes as well. A little caveat to this. Um, I am going, I wanted to end, I usually end uh, with either me saying something or end with like a video or, or some kind of clip video. This is a podcast. <laughs> um, but I usually end with some, you know, something after the actual uh, interview. And uh, this week I want to end on a James Baldwin uh, note a James Baldwin uh, some audio from him uh, and not that that particular audio connects back like I'm trying to put that back on Khaled but I thought it was important to put out there to just continue the conversation and to really hold some of these things in tension 
And so that's why I, I wanted to have that. I normally don't explain a lot of that. I try to just put it out there and just let you guys interpret it. But I did wanted to make that, you know, to connection because I, I, I didn't want anybody thinking, oh, man, well, man, that was a great interview. And then you're going to end on a quote like that. Now you guys are probably like, man, I want to skip to the end and see what he does. Hear the whole thing, hear it out, and then go back. Uh, and, you know, you can full fast forward or whatever. But hear the whole thing first um, and then take in the Baldwin quote. And I, I definitely wanted to start off the, the podcast with this other quote from crazy man uh because i think that's an attitude that prevails very strongly right now uh among white america and not just white americans as well i've talked with plenty of african americans asian americans latinx americans who feel the exact same way so i think these are conversations they're ongoing conversations i got some shows in the mix coming up we're going to be trying to address some of these things so i just wanted to give you the heads up and talk a little bit about that uh, caveat there but uh, I think you guys are going to really like this conversation with Callie because he's he's a deep brother. You'll see. He goes in. He goes really in deep. So without any further ado, let me bring this brother up. So I think I only took – I'm under seven minutes. I'm under seven minutes, y'all. That's good stuff, right? <laughs> All right, y'all. Here's Khaled. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, y'all. Welcome back. This is your boy, Dan White Hodge, here in the lab with a good friend of mine that I have met through AAR. I'm telling you, man, AAR, if y'all, y'all ain't gotten down to AAR, I've met a lot of good people there. I've got Dr. Khaled Keith Perry. What's going on, brother? Uh, well, I'm not a doctor. Isn't that the amazing thing? What? I thought you, I thought you had the PhD, brother. No, no, no. I was self-taught for a long time and then started the PhD after the fact. Uh-huh. So I'm technically still working on it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I know I know I know it's coming though, man. I know. It's come well, it'll come. It it better come or my marriage is going to be under suspicious. <laughs> yes, sir. Categories. No, I'm working I am working on that. I mean, I'm doing other things too. Yeah. Uh but but I am uh, I am banging away at that thing. Man, I hear that, man. So when and so for the listeners, and, and as I ask everybody, you know, what is, what's been your journey? How have you gotten to this point in this time and space? Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, uh, faith wise, I mean, I think it's, um, it's actually pretty unusual. Um, I was raised up, um, by my mom and dad, um, kind of typical, uh, kind of white new England folks. Mm. So like, uh, Irish Catholic, uh, Irish, uh, Protestant mix, and then some Italian Catholics with a uh, French Canadian, uh, Quebecois kind of Catholic kind of stuff. They're just a mix of kind of New England um, li- laborers, really. Um, okay. Um, so a, a lot of folks doing work with their hands, um, kind of. Uh, I had I had family farming, uh, you know, in my grandparents' generation. So we were uh, kind of workers, you know, in the factories and stuff. Yeah. And of very unusual for an organism for a family like that uh, i was raised outside of the church entirely okay um my um mother and i think to some degree my father but my mother certainly you know her position on religion uh is actually not that unusual and i was really grateful for her being straight up about it Mm. her position was dan uh look if religion is to make you uh do good things and you could do good things without religion that you don't need religion. Mm, okay. All right. So, so I actually, you know, even though I'm a, a theologian doing, you know, that for my career, I actually agree with my mom. Like if you <laughs> yeah. really think religion is just about ethics and just about doing the right thing, if that's really all you think it's about, uh-huh. well, then you're not doing it right. You don't need it. Just do good stuff. Oh, 
Oh. <laughs> but but if instead you think it's more than just ethics, that there's a there's a way of being about it, there's a community about it, there's a there's a um, uh, a kind of a, a, a way of seeing and thinking and feeling, and it's not just ethics, which I happen to think. Well, then you got to start exploring that stuff and not just be about like what you think is right and, and wrong and, and ethics. Anyway, so I was raised up outside of the church. <laughs> yes, sir. And um, as ha- sometimes happens to folks, uh, I hit a, a real big rough patch when I went to college. I was not real prepared for college. Um, I was a pretty smart guy and had never really learned how to learn or really how to do any work. I kind of screwed around and, and, and largely got by uh on on um, some horsepower, intellectually speaking, and uh, and probably you know if I'm being honest, the the, the realities of uh, of you know male privilege and stuff like that, because like I was a smart guy and um, went to college and wasn't really prepared for college. And the first person in my family to go to college, um, you know, signed away some of those papers and put myself into debt, not really knowing what I was doing. I mean. It's the kind of thing where you can be smart, but you don't know, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, like, yeah. I, I went to a real good school. It totally changed my life, but, like, I'm never going to pay it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so I was there, and um, uh, I, w- I, I hit uh, some pretty bad rough patches um, and was in a pretty uh, low space, uh, depressed and, and, and um, mm. you know, doing some, um, some not healthy things with my life. Yeah. Can I say? Yeah. And um, ended up. Uh, getting connected to the religious society of friends, the folks that uh, most of y'all will call Quakers. Um, and I came to the Quakers first, man, because uh, because of the tradition that uh, of that type of Quakers, their their worship is all silent. So you come in to, to Sunday morning and everyone is sitting and praying. And um, if no one feels like they have a, a word to speak, nothing happens. And then, and then later at the mm. end of it, when someone decides you're done, you're done, and nothing was spoken for the whole period of worship. Wow. Uh, okay. On the other, on the other hand, if somebody, if anybody, including you know Dan White Hodges, shows up, feels like he's got something on him, he just stands up and he's given the floor. Okay. Okay. So, that, so that's the tradition of uh, of the Quakers that I came into, and because I had been raised outside of the church, it was very appealing to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because no one was talking about God, no one was talking about Jesus, and sometimes no one was talking about anything. Uh, <laughs> but there was a group of people together who had uh, justice oriented perspectives. They were really um, kind of focused on kind of social things, and and rather than just talking about you know doctrine or salvation, they were like getting out and getting things done yeah. and that really appealed to me but then as i started to really really you know plug into the tradition lo and behold it certainly has not just kind of christian roots it's entirely a christian organization <laughs> right and it comes out of a uh, kind of a holy spirit orientation um so a lot of the early um you know pentecostal revivals and things that happen at azusa have ties to to my own tradition Hmm. Um, the, the religious society of friends is very, very high Holy spirit, um, c- component. So, you know, as years went by, you know, up to the present, I found myself in a different journey than a lot of folks. Uh-huh. Uh, and I know, I think once upon a time you were kind of plugged into to what was called, you know, 10, 15 years ago, emergent church stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. For me, I, I, I ended up hitting that same crew, but from a different direction, right? These were all folks, largely the white folks, at least. 
who were um, evangelical or, quote, post-evangelical, mm-hmm. who were worried about their conservative backgrounds but didn't feel like they could leave the church, right? Yeah. And so what they were doing is trying to figure out how to re-envision their faith in a way that was more tied to justice and, like, materiality, to the stuff of the world. Yeah. And at the same exact time, I was hitting these crossroads where I was the, the kind of far Christian right of my own organization uh, and already was becoming more Christian, so I wasn't politically needing to go any left. I was as far left as left could get. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out how that position had a basis in the gospel. Yeah. So yeah. We, we hit each other at a crossroads in these kind of national conversations. Uh, but I was going the other way. <laughs> Interesting, man. That, see, that's fascinating, man. Because that was at a time, I know for me, you know, speaking of that, just, you know, we can pick up on that emergent time. I mean, I know... Coming out of a, a very fundamental background, Seventh Day Adventist, um, and really, and like you said, it was, I'm just I'm I'm rubber banding the other way. It's like, man, I'm going, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. And so for me, when I first, you know, came into contact with, you know, say Tony Jones or, um, or really any of those that that whole the you know that ministry whole, stuff, especially because right. that was your jam at the time. Ex- yeah. Exactly, exactly, man. And so it was just like, oh man, how can we push to make this more this and this and that relevant and stuff, man? And so. Man, that's interesting. Can you and talk a little bit about you say you going the other way? Like what 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 does that mean? What does that what does that so, what does that look like? So then? yeah, yeah, yeah. So in my tradition within the kind of progressive or like liberal, uh what we call them branch of Quakers, mm-hmm. um, because we didn't ever have um in my particular branch paid clergy, because you don't know it, it's all it's hierarchical less. So like we follow the priesthood of all believers idea all the way to its end. Okay. So we abolished the laity. There's no lay people left in the tradition. Okay. Everyone is acknowledged as a minister because on any given Sunday, anyone could be kind of given a word and you do it. But what happens over time, man, is if you don't have good ways of teaching, you don't have consistent ways of preaching, and then the modern era picks up so you don't live in close communities with people who are like you and you're spread out into the world, it's hard to pass on the tradition. So, for example, I, you know, it's not unusual at all. For there to be kind of a liberal Quaker meeting of let's just say a hundred people, yeah, and only three or four were raised in the tradition. Hmm. Interesting. So how how many generations can you go before you lose track of where you came from? Oh yeah, yeah. Right. So so what I'm saying I'm going the other way is I am part of this tradition um, that in some ways sounds like if you talk to me in my Christianness I sound like I'm from 150 years ago because I'm very clearly a Christian before I'm a Quaker. And a lot of other kind of progressive Quakers, you would be hard-pressed to even get them to say that they have anything to do with Christianity, because their practice is just the silent sitting and doing justice work, and they're in a community of people who do justice work with them, and there's some kind of vague universalist sense or, or, or unity or universalism of it. And there's nothing wrong with that, really. Like, I think people, you know, to each their own, but I'm aware of the roots of the tradition, and I am... I do a lot of my work ecumenically. I spent a lot of time with, with folks outside of the religious society doing ecumenical stuff, having conversations, and and do understand my own story as a Christian story and narrate it that way. Um, and yeah. so that actually makes some people in my own tradition uncomfortable hmm. because they've because there's no teaching and preaching consistently, there's a lot of people, even in my own congregation— who, while they know how I am and how I identify, wouldn't identify as Christians the same way and were part of the same congregation. Wow. And, and here's the trick of it. And I yeah. think I think <laughs> this is the, the crux. 
if me, if the me that walked into a congregation, the first time I walked into that congregation uh-huh. met me now, he yeah. would walk back out. Cause he's like, who is this fool? <laughs> <laughs> I sound way too Christian, way too, uh, gospel centered, way too, uh, kind of focused on, 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 on what does it mean to do discipleship? What does it mean to kind of be in order, um, that I wouldn't have been able to hear the way I sound now. Um, okay. And I, and I would have turned back around. So it was important that I entered into a congregation that wasn't talking about any of this stuff. Otherwise I never would have gone more than a step in the door. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely, man. I mean, I'm, man, that's so fascinating. I mean, and so with that then in mind, I mean, you, you take that and you, you think about, okay, our, our current political, sociopolitical situation and where we're at. Um, so what does that look like now, given when you talk about justice, when you think about, you know, progressive leaning and, you know, um, how that connects? I mean, how then do we then, I mean, dare I use the word reconcile with what is happening now when you have kind of this this element that, you know, was once in the corner, or at least we thought it was in the corner. We thought it was, oh, okay, the Nazis and the alt-right, ah, that's whatever, but, you know, that's far-right radio, and now it's in the national national news and national setting and main main narrative. But how do you engage that? How do you deal with that? What are some of the things you come across in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, it's interesting to me that you said it wasn't in the main. I mean, I, I think by and large, uh, more or less everyone other than white folk know that this was not in the corner to begin with. I, I don't know. <laughs> like the, the it, its coverage in the mainstream media is new, but like the sure. realities of white supremacy and you know, rape culture and misogyny are not unknown to folks of color and women. <laughs> no, oh, absolutely, no, absolutely. I'm mainly, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm mainly talking about just like how we how we process that in the media. But oh yeah, absolutely, this stuff was, it's dead center, man. Right. And so I, so as a white person, I mean, I think that's the first piece that that I bring to that to the table a, as a white dude. You know, part of part of the way I think that handling this is to say to a lot of my, you know. Um, a lot of my colleagues, you guys do know that this is not news, right? Because <laughs> a lot of progressive-minded white folk, quite simply, man, just are run with only white people. And yeah. so they don't know. They think it's suddenly come out of nowhere and it lives in it lives in the Nazis and it's somehow yeah. – it doesn't exist north of uh, Virginia or something. <laughs> right, right, um, right. Or it's only it's only vaguely, you know, north of of Virginia. We're, we're, and so I think the first part of it, like as a as a Christian, you know, one of the things I really think about a lot, especially along people with privilege. So I'm thinking here around kind of progressive minded kind of white Christian congregations or, or dominant white Christian, certainly mm-hmm. is like you don't get to repent unless you confess. Oh, all right. Okay. Right. And so if we don't acknowledge the ways in which, you know, our own uh, privilege uh, has benefited us, it's going to be really hard for us to seriously take any steps towards solidarity and changing. It just ain't going to work. Look, there are people in my situation who had the kind of stuff happen to them, um, who made some bad choices when they were younger, who, if they didn't look like me, never would have been able to recover. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. so you get a couple months late on your rent and you got some buddies that you owe money that you use the money for for the wrong thing. You know, like how long can you do that and still make everything work out? Well, it's easier when when you're a smart white guy, even if you are a first generation college student. Right. It's just it's just it's just the, the function of how society works, whether we like it or not. 
And so I think in terms of dealing with media and dealing with, you know, colleagues and, and friends and congregation stuff and the work that I do with churches is like the first part is to say, you may not like that you've got this privilege. In fact, you probably don't. But like bearing a millstone of guilt doesn't actually uh, catalyze you to do any work. Right. So show fine, be guilty, but then confess what the, the realities of like holding on to this privilege and where it has helped you. And then let's see about turning the uh, turning away. Right. And uh, a, a, a colleague of mine said they don't like the word repent. And I, so I've been trying to think of some some ways to translate that word in a different way. And so I started been doing this with capital W, capital C, whole change. It's like a whole change. Right. OK. So what is repentance? It's whole change. And so if we're really going to do whole change work together. Yeah. Uh, systemic change. We got to acknowledge, you know, where we're at. Like maps don't work unless you know where you are on it to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I think in terms of dealing with media, in terms of dealing with like uh, progressive Christians, you know, there's a lot of good intention, um, but there's not always a lot of acknowledgement of like where we are and how we got here. And if you don't want to own up to that, it's going to be real hard to move forward. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and I think that's um, I think that is just something to to be reckoned with. I mean, I think that is. You know, in particular, when you think about the history of this country and, and and what has been and what hasn't been acknowledged, and especially now that we're, you know, there's been an ongoing. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in a town where I, I had a history book that said, um, you know, the Civil War was won by the South. And it wasn't until like the sixth grade that I figured that, oh, wait, that that's not right. You know, yeah. <laughs> and so. Yeah. You know, this type of history is 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 been, you know, there. And, you know, you go anywhere in the South, especially the deep South, you know, there's a strong current of, you know, uh, oh, man, yeah, the South lost. But it's like, you know, they begrudgingly, you know, when they reenact those battles, it's like, well, but, they, you know, but but the North was this, the North was that. So my point being is, is, is how then do we reckon with theologically? I mean, I, I would I'd yeah. love to ask you this question, theologically speaking, because I'm I'm actually trying to figure out, like, what what does this mean then for. A, a faith that has in, in this country has has some elements of supremacy has some elements of colonialism you know to it not necessarily in the roots of it so I'm not necessarily talking about okay you know in the Bible in the can I'm talking about look just in the last 150 years you know there's been some there's been some major stuff going on so when mm-hmm. I talk to some folks who maybe out of the Zulu or five percenters you know they're kind of like man Christianity is a white man's religion you are serving a god that is that this that's an oppressive and I I haven't and, and I get it I mean I went through that that journey but I am also in a place now where I'm just like I don't I'm not there anymore I don't necessarily see it as that I've I've worked mm-hmm. through that but how do you engage with this theologically and mm-hmm. and again just dealing with some of the, the 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 major things that come up with a faith like Christianity especially in the the Trump era yeah, yeah. does that make sense yeah absolutely uh, do you know the name Henrietta Lacks Henrietta Lacks uh, not not offhand. So this is this is how I think about this. All so, right, come on. So Henrietta Lacks uh, is an African American woman um, who was um, had cancer. Okay. Uh, early 1900s, and um, she was being treated by a doctor. I think in the 50s, and um, the the type of cancer that she had was a kind of very unusual, very fast growing cancer. And they ended up taking out part of Henrietta Lacks uh, surgically. And the cancer that was, you know, cancer is you. It's just you not working right, right? Yeah. 
the basis of Henrietta Lacks's body that was sampled became the basis for all, I'm saying all without hyperbole, Dan, all modern medical biology research. Wow. So Whoa. all all human biological research done on human cells comes from a strain that came out of a black woman's body. Wow. Globally, globally, man. Every, everything that is done in kind of like medical biological science mm -hmm. is a result of strains of strains of strains of strains of strains as that was not legally taken from Henrietta Lacks's body and her and her children have never seen a dime even though the entirety of the Western medical industry, the ability to do research on human cells and not have it die in a petri dish is only because something happened in her body cancerously that allowed cells to reproduce fast enough that it wouldn't die in a dish. Wow. Okay. Now, that's wrong. There's all kinds of ways in which there's uh, a colonial, literally a taking of a good from a body, literally a body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is heinous. However, it is a mistake to say as a result of that, that medicine has not done good. I got you. I got you. It's a both and. It's a both and. We have to come to grips with the fact that um, in terms of Henrietta Lacks and what she gave to us, that name should be known. We should know that name because literally the basis of modern medicine is premised on her flesh, on the body of a black woman. Mm. But we, but doctors don't know who she is, really. Right. Even though they couldn't do medical science, experimentation, pharmacological stuff, any of this kind of stuff isn't possible, really, without human strains of cells that live. And that lives because of this woman, Henrietta Lacks. Wow. But medicine does make good things. It, it helps us. We have some cures for some cancers we didn't have before. We know, we know there are ways to do um, all kinds of good things that we couldn't have done without it. Now. That's not to say that I think we should keep doing it and keep robbing bodies and keep robbing flesh for the sake of the in industry. Yeah. But it's a mistake to say just because there's a heinous origin, there aren't goods that come out of it. Sure. Sure. So does Christianity come to this country on the on the backs of colonialism and uh, and in the enslavement of Africans? Absolutely. There's, there's no question about it. But the the hope would be that if we can nonetheless experience a sense of um, liberation and freedom that actually gets out into the world in a physical way. Yeah. To, to the extent that that can occur, well, then there's still life in it. Mm. Um, if, however, and this is my own tradition, we've been very kind of oriented towards the kind of ma material world in some degree, as we say, if, if there is life in it, then give it life. Um, if it's a dead form, abandon it. Wow. And so and so if if your faith is actually liberating people and freeing up people and bringing them into greater sense of flourishing in life, mm -hmm. well, then let's rock. Uh, <laughs> if, however, it's just putting people down and making them accept the status quo with a with a with a promise that later on heaven will make it all right. I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. But I don't <laughs> I don't read that book, the, the Bible. Uh, and see Jesus saying, yo, guys, just chill. It'll be fine. That's not that's that's not the book that <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. later that's a later invention. Um, and that's not to say we are not going to go to heaven. I don't that's not it has nothing to do with that claim. But the point is, why would we not be working towards liberation and justice in the present? Mm. Mm, mm, mm. 
Well, brother, I mean, that's I mean, and those are some of the things that, you know, that again, that I that I come up against. And I think, um, as you know, going through the process of, you know, scholarship and reading and, you know, having to be non-biased and, you know, come up with, you know, all these, you know, these these this type of almost this rationale. I've 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 found myself, OK, what are the ancestors? How did they process knowledge? I feel like, OK, there's. There's been a real modernistic Western way of, of processing, a linear way of looking at things, right? And so how then do we deconstruct without tearing down something? Because I feel like that's when I first got to seminary, that's how I was taught, right? When I first went, right. it was, and, 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 and I just went at it. It was like a machine gun. It was just like, you know, well, okay, let me just take this. Oh, yeah, the black church. Oh, yeah, they're doing this. Oh, man, the white church, they're doing, they're doing this, and the church in general. And so... You know, it came to a point where I was like, I almost like just walked away completely from my faith because it's just like, well, then what's the point? If everything's just bad, what's right, right, the right. point? Mm-hmm. And then thankfully, I know I've come back, but I but I haven't come back. As I always tell people, like, you know, I, I didn't come back the same. I, I came back. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yeah. there's something there's, there's there's something different here. So that I know that's one of the journeys that I've been on, and and just looking at okay in this era, like what what does that look like? And then. Talk to me then a little bit about then shifting gears just a little bit. I mean, thinking about faith and, you know, this this horrendous act of violence that happened in, out in Las Vegas, um, you know, with this guy. Um, You've been processing that thing, man, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. There is, you know, and just, I mean, and, and it's not just that. I mean, we can go all the way back to Columbine. We can, I mean, we can look here in the United States of just the amount of, you know, mass killings and just how we view guns, violence. Uh, 9-11, I mean, we're always hearing about, oh, we took out ISIS and we blew up. I mean, it's like people didn't march. And I mean, I was just reading this, the news that, you know, the people marched in. I forget what city was just taken back, um, you know, out of ISIS's hands and stuff. And so, you know, people didn't go in there and, and, and love them out, you know. So it's like, how do you how, then how do you engage with that? I mean, looking, you know, talking about this and, and engaging with that. So I'd, I'd love to hear that. Or it does, it, again, does that, that make sense? So I know it's yeah, kind of no. all over the place with that. No, man. I mean, it's a, it's a big question for me. Right. So, yeah. um, I know. so my tradition tends to be what well, it doesn't tend to be. It's identified with what's called the historic peace churches. All right. So the Quakers, the Mennonites, um, the, the, um, old order Dutch, the Amish, um, church of the brethren, we get identified as, as um, peace churches, which means there's a historical kind of commitment to pacifism. Um, and that is not one, um, that I necessarily share on, in a doctrinal way. Um, that's mm. to say, there's a lot of ways in which um, uh, you can understand what pacifism is. And there is a culture of politeness that functions as a kind of uh, tone policing yeah. that just reinforces status quo. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so... If to the extent that kind of peaceful politeness actually just reinscribes the whole damn thing within within the context of of uh, oppression, I, I can't swing it. Like I'm not interested in being polite and kind and <laughs> and yeah. peaceful. If what polite, kind, and peaceful means is don't upset the apple cart and leave things the way they're at. OK, yeah. we we don't we don't see Jesus doing that. We don't see the prophets doing that. Good God. Um, and so I I generally think that to some degrees, many of the pacifist tendencies, especially white pacifist tendencies, are actually 
inadvertent carriers for the maintenance of supremacy. Oh, brother. Woo. Now, I'm not that that's not the same thing as advocating for violence. Sure, 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 sure. I'm sure, just sure. trying to say let's really critique why we're doing this. Yeah. Are, are we doing this because we feel safe enough to say we don't need violence? Can the people who um, are, are most oppressed now? So then you turn to people like Dr. King, right? Yeah, yeah. But but Dr. King's understanding of, of nonviolence didn't stop where most people stop. In fact, one of the reasons uh, man got killed is because he, is he, he started critiquing the American political system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? He didn't deify this nation. He said, we got some serious stank. <laughs> yeah. We got to be investigating. Right, 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 right. right. So, so got killed. Now, I don't, I'm not, I don't know if it's a one-to-one -one kind of thing. It's not like it's some COINTELPRO stuff, but, you know, uh, but maybe it was. The point is, we need to make sure that our response to violence isn't an attempt for everyone to just calm down and quiet down mm -hmm. and keep things the way they are. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is, but it's somewhere other than everybody calm down and quiet down and stay nice and play kind and polite. That's I don't think that's the right response because then things just stay the way they are. I also don't think the response is to equip everyone with an AK and a bump stock and and try to shoot all the bad guys down. Yeah. That doesn't seem as a Christian. Yeah. I don't think that that seems right either. Um you know, I think a lot of times, man, I spend a, some of my academic work kind of processing the kind of the, the field in kind of public theology, big P, big T. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that these cats say, a lot of them in, in the European context, these these kind of women and men who are saying, look, liberation theology has got some really good perspectives around the necessity for justice to be materialized, right? That the, the experience of the sacrament of the church better look like a real thing on the ground. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. However, they have a hard time talking to people who don't agree with them because you either are in or you're out in terms of a lot of the way liberationists kind of think about things. Like either you understand the church this way and you agree it better be manifest physically or it's not the church. And so coalition building can sometimes be hard. And the public theologian people say we need to figure out a way to do incremental change and not just revolutionary change. Mm -hmm. Because if you're waiting for revolutionary wow. change, Everywhere between now and when the actual revolution comes, what happens to the day-to-day -day stuff? That's good. That's a good word. But the danger, Dan, is if you then start doing incremental or like uh, reformational versions of it, like yeah. you know, little bit, little bit, little bit, and you forget that in fact there is a possibility of a revolution that will come, you'll become satisfied with tiny change as opposed to massive systemic change. Uh, that, right. So, so I like to like read those books in both hands. It's like let's read the liberationists in one hand who say the whole thing's got to be flipped over and then recognize we can't just wait around for the flipping over. We, we, we need to kind of be out and doing things and equipping people and teaching people that the incremental isn't necessarily the enemy of the revolution. Man, brother, man, that that is that's that's good. Cause I, I like that. I like that tension. I like, I, I, I talked a lot about that just in, in different things that I've written. I mean, and talk about, you know, this theology of tension, like how do we, because I think, I mean, you, you say something that, that, that strikes a real good chord with me. Cause I'm like, I think so much of particularly Western evangelical Christianity here in the United States has, it's, it's gotten to a place where it's, we're uncomfortable with lament. 
were were uncomfortable with 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 suffering. Like, and, and of course, naturally, I mean, who wants to suffer? I mean, except I mean, I'm sure there's some psychological profile for somebody that loves pain, but most people are not not there. I know I don't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but you said it. You're like you're holding both in hand because it's. You're right. The incremental. And I feel like that's I've been in those circles where it's like, oh, man, we just got to be satisfied with this. We got to be satisfied with this. And that's when I'm like, no, remember. But then you get in those circles because I have some of my friends, you know, it's like when I was writing for Brill. I like, oh, my gosh, these cats is like Marxist and we could turn everything over and your your writing is too evangelical and it's this and this. And that. I'm like, oh, man, we got to turn the tables over right now. And I'm like. Gee whiz! I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go to the Walking Dead right now. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to live in that world, you know, right now. I'm not, I'm not prepared for that, man. I'm still, I don't even have uh, solar panels yet, man. So, you know, give me, give me, a, give me a second. But, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, what I'm saying, yeah, that's it. You got to get those panels up the, there first, man. I know, man. I'm working. I, hey, I'm starting to harvest my water, though, brother. I'm starting. I got my got my little <laughs> cisterns building. Up. Yeah. But. My boy, man, is is that I think that there's something great in that, man. And so for you, and maybe you've already, you know, worked through this and stuff, but, you know, because I, I know there's, you know, all kind of folks who, you know, who listen to this, but how do we then push past just that simplistic, what's well, got to be one way or the other? How do you, how do you live in that tension? What does that look like for you, your family, your, your, <laughs> you're just your day to day? Yeah, yeah. So, um, actually, I'll do, I'll do it with a family one, actually, because I think that that, okay. that, that comes out. So I got a, I got a daughter. Yes, sir. Um, she's seven years old. And, um, you know, my wife and I are trying to figure out what does it mean to raise someone in the faith? Cause neither one of us was raised in the church. Okay. So we read, uh, scripture together. We, you know, we're, we kind of talk about Bible. We talk about, um, kind of the ways that we think Jesus would have wanted us to live and the kinds of things we do. We pray together, you know, whatever this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, the question, of course, has to come like, what do we tell her the Bible is? Yeah. Right? How, how do we tell her that this book is working in our lives? And what I say to her is this is a book that our tradition has told the stories from since it was written. Okay. Yeah, I like that. And we want to tell those stories too. Yeah. Whoa. That's not an insignificant thing because you know what? There's no other book like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So so she knows we read all the time. She sees all the books in my office and all the stuff <laughs> I'm going through, right? I'm going off. I'm teaching people. But what's the one book that we tell the stories from that people have been telling stories from? And, and of course, we don't talk about the, 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 the Nicene Council and whenever we added other books in or whatever. Like that's not seven-year-old yeah. talk. But what I don't say to her is – um, you must read this or you'll, or you'll die, you know, or you'll die, you know, in, 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 and in some ways what I hope we're doing is giving her an even, uh, more powerful, compelling reason to be in that book that for hundreds of years, people who, um, we're the inheritors of attrition of have said, this is a book they want to keep telling the stories of. Yeah. That doesn't mean we like it all. We tell stories that we don't like, right? So the, the story around Passover um, and our um, Jewish brothers and sisters, when they're telling these stories, um, you know, the, the night, unlike all their nights, when we tell the stories of the oppression of the, of the Jewish people and the time in the desert, we don't like that story. That's hmm. not a good story they're telling, but we tell it because it's a story we tell, right? Yeah. When you, when, when you were, um, 
in your first episode, right? When you're telling the story of about what it's like to be the only uh, uh, dark skinned dude in your classroom, and and <laughs> yeah, what does it mean yeah. to kind of to like not quite be um, Chicano or black, or you are black but you're not like you don't like that story. It wasn't fun to yeah. share that story to grow yeah. up that way, but we tell it because there's power in it. So when I say to my daughter, this book is the book that we tell the stories of. That Ooh. doesn't mean we have to wish they all happened exactly the way they did, but we tell those stories. Right. And then later we can process some of that. But you know what, man? That's not a, such a bad place to start even with adults. Is, yeah. What are the traditions? So, for example, when I teach systematics, I was just talking to students the other day, Christian systematic theology. I said, look, a lot of people would teach Christian systematics as categories of types of doctrine. I mean, yes, I guess that's true. But when I think about systematics, each of those technical terms, right, Christology, theology, proper, pneumatology, go through the list, right, all the big right. major seven questions. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Those categories for me are just the labels on a series of questions that we've been asking for 2,000 years. Man, that's – yeah, I like Who's that. Who's God? Who is God? And so then all the answers to that go under the doctrinal category of theology proper. Who is Jesus? And then all the questions related to who is Jesus, those going to go under the category of Christology. Yeah. But when we teach it, we very rarely teach it as a basket of questions. We teach it as a series of propositions. Hmm. And that changes the way you approach the study of Scripture and the way you you, you study the, the tradition of the church. So how do we approach this? I tend to approach it assuming that um, to the extent that I know what it is that God is, um, God has a, a desire for for justice for flourishing for all of God's creatures and all of creation. And um, that if we can continue to question our actions and, ha and, and, and think about the ways in which they do or do not contribute to or take away from flourishing for our brothers and sisters and, and folks who don't fit on the gender binary and for all of creation outside of humanity, if we can keep testing ourselves and questioning ourselves and allowing ourselves to change and be turned over towards that good order that God has and wants for the world, then we will some somehow kind of come to uh, a head. And, and I got to say, a, a major um, block or place where people are not going to be able to go down with that theological position is if you hold on to a kind of uh, eschatology or hope for the future, yeah. which says that you don't need to worry about the created order in the present um, because it will all pass and we'll come into a heaven later. I I'm going to say I can't go there. Okay. And I'm going to say maybe we will have a created order later that is better. I see no reason why, therefore, we shouldn't try to live faithfully and take away suffering and yield more flourishing in the present. Wow. Even if you do think there's a the sense of New Jerusalem and the kind of heaven – uh, second time way of being, regardless of how you actually think about it, if you then think that that gives you a license or a warrant to say, screw the present, I don't need to worry about what is right now because I got mine later, I can't go there. Hmm. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir, man. Well, and again, I know in my, my tradition, uh, you know, again, growing up as an Adventist, I mean, it was that was a large part of the focus. I mean, aside from, you know, focus, you know, looking at the Sabbath as, you know, doctrinal and salvational and everything, it was like, okay, the end times. And so, um, you know, and I know you said it, I mean, right. It's like, you know, there are folks now who's like, you know, we don't, we don't have to care about climate change. We don't have to care about what's, what's going on right now. God's coming to fix this and God's coming soon. So we don't even have to, we don't have to worry about it. Um, so no, that's deep brother. That's yeah. That's as they say, 
that'll preach, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the, the way that that, I mean, in terms of like creation care stuff or like environmental theological concerns, you know, a lot of cats will say, well, God gave us dominion over the earth. We can do whatever we want. Look, if my father gives me something beautiful, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And he comes over my house a month later after he gave it to me and it's been sitting in the corner. It's got all janky, you know, and and he's like, what are you doing with that? I was like, oh, whatever I want. It's mine, pops. Is that the way <laughs> I want to approach my father? Is that what I want to do with the gift he gave me? That's, yeah, no, that's good. No, you want to care for it. Our stewardship over our dominion over it ought to be having it work at its best. And man the world <laughs> is not working at its best. <laughs> right. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, man, brother, this is, this is, this is really good, man. I like, I like this type of stuff. What, um, <laughs> so what, uh, now what type of stuff are you doing now? What, what's, uh, what, what are you up to now? What are you writing now? What do you, what, what do you got going on? Yeah. So actually, I mean, that's a good, a good little like jump over because, you know, the way I orient towards a lot of stuff around this question asking, right, uh, kind of thrusts me in a lot of the ways into the world of um, art. Like if, if you really want to think about where questions come from and how stories get told powerfully, yeah. you're talking about pop culture. Actually, that's how I first came across you um, before you and I ever met in the flesh was your book on um, Tim's Rims and, and the theology of hip hop. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, right? yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I was, I'm, I've always been uh, kind of pursuing these questions around um, what gets called pop culture, or you know, um, uh, art and the arts, and and the ways in which we actually are, um, the way we think about the world, the way we see the world, you know, what, what technically sometimes gets called as um, our imaginary. Yeah. Um, imaginaries are shaped by the media we consume. Hmm. Uh, totally. Yes. And so. Um, because I'm question oriented, I'm wanting to kind of pursue and ask after what's next, what's next, as opposed to tell everyone what's next, what's next. You know, we I end up looking at a lot of media and aesthetics and thinking away that religion and the arts co- coincide or or their intention. You know, you were talking about that, you know, the, the, the importance of tension within the kind of life of faith earlier. You know, that definitely shows up if you start thinking about art. Um, so, you know, a lot of what I do um, is, is, is work on that stuff. So my academic work, my doctoral stuff has to do with like public schools and the kind of imaginaries that our public schools shape kids into, like, what do they end up thinking the world is? Um, you know, how do they end up thinking the world works as a result of public education? Yeah. And then the implications that has for them, their inside, you know, their, their spirit and then their psychology. Um, and then some of my, uh, work that is not my degree work, um, has to do with, um, I just have a, actually I have a piece coming out, uh, in, uh, a couple of months here, um, about, about hip hop, um, nice. about, about the ways in which, um, some of the hip hop that you wouldn't readily identify as quote Christian hip hop, right. Mm-hmm. Um, is nonetheless really powerful and informative in terms of ju- justice seeking and, uh, so, like, I'm looking at Killer Mike, right? Killer Mike and Run the Jewels, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Mike is not going to be, like, you know, identifying the same way as, like, like Shylin or some of these other cats who are, like, you know, Beautiful Eulogy or those guys, right? Right, right. right. It's a different – it's a different – we're getting real deep here, folks. This is insider baseball. I don't know. <laughs> but so there's a Christian rap, and then and then there's people who rap who happen to be Christian, and then there's people who rap who have really, I think – 
I've started to really grapple with the message of Jesus in a kind of concrete way, which Absolutely. is to say, why are my people suffering? Yeah. And that's different than, quote, Christian rap. Um, but by said, really thinking about it then is like, what does it mean to think about Christians who are rapping about Christianity? And essentially, they're just like preaching, but instead of from the pulpit, they're doing it with a mic versus people who are really focused on the questions Jesus was asking and are yeah. asking those questions regardless of how they ask them. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so and so that's that's kind of the, the place I've been doing, you know, a lot of my thinking around um, lately has do has been do with hip hop. And, and what do I think? Um, about how it's communicating and what is it doing and um, and, and why we should care. Um, yeah. You know, why we should care. <laughs> Where, now, where's that joint going to be published at, man? I got I got to check this out. Uh, I'll send it to you, but it's coming out in a book, um, uh, an edited volume by a guy named Richard Carney. And now this is a great example of kind of like where I come into this world, right? So Richard Carney is this philosopher of religion, um, and he has this idea called anatheism. Um, and he's saying it's not atheism, it's not theism, but like there comes a time when you have to ask yourself, like, do I really believe this? What do I believe? And <laughs> and and coming back and really asking yourself and allowing yourself to reappraise the situation, he said, can be like the birth of new faith. Mm. He said, but you have to allow a moment where you're willing to say, I might not believe. You have to come back yeah. to that moment. So anatheism means back to theism, right? Okay. Um, not not away from theism, atheism or theism, but like come back to like loop around. You can imagine like mm. going around the top of a mountain. What happens when you come back to the site of of belief and you allow yourself to maybe not believe? <laughs> Man, right. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of faith, the kind of faith that comes out of the willingness to give it away is a more robust faith if you come back. And so yes. he he got a bunch of people to write about the way art is good for this, right? You can look at, you can tr work on interpreting a piece and not really know how this novel works or stand in front of a painting and be confused. And then you get it and the feeling of getting it really helped. Right? So everyone's writing about like, I don't know what, who are famous novel people like James Joyce or like <laughs> Charles Dickens yeah. or like who are famous painters like Chagall or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he contacted me and he's like, I love, we're doing this book. Everyone's dealing with art and they're dealing with art and the idea of anatheism. What do you want to do? And I was like, Run the jewels. <laughs> ah, this rather. And he was like, I don't know what that is. I said, that's okay, Richard. I do. Oh, and so man. this book is really like Charles Dickens and Chagall and like Proust and like all these kind of very famous like European literature people. And it's yeah. me writing about, uh, you know, like underground hip hop and like its origins in the Bronx and, you know, doing stuff like that. And I, yeah. who knows? I'm curious to see when the first person review it, it writes about it. Cause you'd be like, who is this cat? <laughs> <laughs> so it's coming out in a weird place, but I hope, you know, one of the things I want to say, the reason I did that is to say, look, it's all well and good to talk about, I don't know, Da Vinci or whoever famous painter people are. Yeah. Um, and then some of that stuff is amazing. Like it really is like incredible to go see some of that stuff. But if you think that's where art ended, uh, and you're not aware of the ways in which like uh, K dot is like changing lives because of 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 what is going right. on out there or yeah. chance. Like if you're not if you can't if you can't roll with the fact that like whole imaginaries are being shaped by these artists, then you have missed the boat. Even though I love you for loving art, my colleagues, if you can't then kind of recognize the ways in which um, hip hop and like real hip hop culture um, and not just commercialized rap industry yeah, yeah. right but hip-hop yeah if hip-hop 
has a, has a, a, a kind of a, a message of liberation and and change. If you can't get get on with that, you have missed like the last you know at least 30, 40 years of 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 the edge of where justice and the art has been colliding in this country. Man, who man, exactly, man. Well, I mean, I know that's been, you know, a drum that, you know, hip hoppers have been beating for a long time, right? I mean, it's like, you know, up until 1989 when we got our first Grammy with parents just don't understand. People were like, oh, it's not even music. This will this fat will, you know, blow away. And then, you know, you move into is can you even study this? Can you even look at this? And then Trisha Rose comes out with the first academic treaties in 1994. You know, and so we're kind of just breaking in a lot of these, you know, these environments, right? I mean, I think about um, as of the publishing of this, you know, podcast, we just released our uh, what is it, our fourth volume, fifth volume mm-hmm. of the Journal of Hip Hop Studies, um, yep. and so I mean some amazing research that's going on, you know, in this field because it's so interdisciplinary, and it involves that, right? It's like if you go to think about art, because hip hop has this not just about music, as you know, and uh, and I'm sure most of our listeners know, uh, but there does involve you know a painted piece, there does involve a you know a an eye to hand to to canvas to that and so man you're absolutely right i mean it's i think i think we have to embrace that man so man i'm i'm glad you holding up that banner brother they going go well and it's and, and it's a huge it's a huge thing too because like and actually this goes back to the the politeness or kindness thing i was saying before right mm-hmm. cuz part of what so uh uh james cone has this line he's talking about it in the the book on the blues he's got oh yeah and he says he says i'm not going to get it just right but it's something like um we know that we have survived. Oh, the, the point of the blues is to sing and say, we know we have survived, that we have not been destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. That, that it, the joy of it isn't like we won, but the joy is like, we still here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Against all odds. Yeah. We, we're still here. And you know what? We're going to dance. Hmm. And so hip hop, I think has a, has a built in kind of, resistance to say this is the, this is what this is what an oppressed body looks like in joy and people don't like that yeah yeah people don't like my my um my friend joe davis the heck of a mc um spoken word artist lutheran uh youth pastor up in the twin cities all right, all um, right. actually he should be on here he's he's he is dope all right i'm gonna um, reach out he, He's toured with a, um, this artist named Agape. I don't know if you heard him. He's a kind of Christian oh, rapper. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so he he opened and does some work with Agape. Um, but so Joe Davis said to me, he said, you know, black joy, uh, he's a brother, he says, black joy itself is a form of resistance. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree with that more. Absolutely. <laughs> because we're not supposed to. We're either supposed yeah. to work real hard and then yeah. get a white life um, or or just kind of stay quiet and, you know, quote, live in the ghetto. And he said, to, you know, to really exceed, you know, to be full of joy in the world makes makes some people uncomfortable. Absolutely. Um, and and again, part of it, I think, is that like people don't know how to handle in your faceness, which is totally weird if you're reading that book, because a lot of what Jesus was doing, a lot of what our prophets were doing. I mean, you, you say it in your book around how to read. We can read Tupac. Uh, we can read we can read a lot of these uh, rappers as prophetic voices. That might not be the same thing as a prophet. It's not like we've got Daniel or you know Ezekiel like in the flesh here, but they're doing something that is prophetic, um, you know. And and the story that gets told. Think about like the way people interpret Thug Life, right? If people actually knew about what's going on with there and how to understand, you know, some of the things 
that were happening in, in, in hip hop and actually took the time to understand what's being said yeah. instead of just being like, oh, well, yeah, he likes thugs. It's like, no, that's not, it's like almost the opposite of <laughs> yeah. what was going on there. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I think a lot of it is people don't take the time to really study, ask questions, interpret, and say, what might this have to do with me? What might this have to do with the gospel? How might it be that 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 the church can be here powerfully? How might it be that the Holy Spirit is showing up in these spaces? And by refusing to ask those questions, we are those of us involved in the church, in church leadership and, and teaching both, we are excluding ourselves from the ways in which I think actually the Holy Spirit is rolling deep. Man. Woo, brother, this is this is deep, man. You've 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 loaded up. Uh, <laughs> this is this is good stuff. This is really good stuff, man. Well, I definitely want to be uh, respectful of time and everything, man. I have appreciated this. This is a really good conversation, and uh, I I definitely have to have you back and and continue <laughs> more of this as we process. You've been encouraging, so this has been an encouraging conversation. Um, right. Where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? What uh, where 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 you at? Where you be yeah, in, in yeah. the world? So so I, this is actually really exciting. Thanks for asking. So you know. Um, just recently, um, big announcement, um, the organization I, I work with is called ARC and you can find us online at artsreligionculture.org. Okay. okay. And I'll put these in the show notes, folks. <clears throat> and th this is a great, actually a really great example of the kind of work that we're about. So this is a merger of two organizations. One is the association for, uh, theopoetics and a shout out to the journal of hip hop studies. Y'all were a sponsor of ours a couple of years back for our uh, spring conference. So oh, uh, right. thanks. Thanks to y'all and John Gill, who I think is on your board. Yes. Uh, so John is a, is a part of our crew and, uh, made that connection. So thanks to the journal of hip hop studies. Um, but so that's a relatively new organization and it's merging with this organization called the society for arts, religion, and contemporary culture. And, and that is an old 1964 founded and it was founded like big names in like uh, the church world. So like Paul Tillich was a founder, um, who's a big, uh, theologian, um, a guy named Joseph Campbell, who's like the father of myth studies in the United States, the guy who made the museum of modern art in New York city. Those folks all came together and made this organization that said art reflection on the art reflection on religion. Those things are braided together. We need to have a kind of a group that re responds and, and lifts up the importance of art for religious reflection of all religious categories. Wow. But as with many like academic arts, professional organizations, super white, super male. Um, and um, our crew doesn't try to run that way. Um, we try to be much more attentive explicitly to diversity around ethnicity and, and race and gender and um, a, a bunch of different things. And we want to say, look, if you're really serious about paying attention to the arts and paying attention to aesthetics, that means you're paying attention to how and how things are made up just as much as what. And that should apply to your boards, too. So yeah. if you say that you've got a really progressive and diverse board, but everyone in leadership is white, um, that's a problem. Because then you're not really paying attention to how. You're telling yourself that you care about how and how things are made up. But then you don't turn that same set of questions and critiques back to your own how, your own <laughs> what. So um, ARC is the merger of this old traditional organization that really wanted to do great work and did really great work. And now 
we are able to merge with it and take our own lenses and say, let's keep asking that question, but ask it even deeper. Let's make sure our leadership looks like different folks. Let's make sure we got different perspectives at the table. Let's make sure that the executive committee is men and women. And let's make sure that we've got people who have um, often been uh, kept out of power in, in decision-making capacities and not just like in volunteer roles or tokenized. And so artsreligionculture.org is live. Uh, I happen to feel it's pretty fire. You know, if you want to get in there and take a look at it, we're, we're doing stuff um, uh, around it. We'll be at AAR doing some stuff. We're sponsoring an event. We do um, a conference every spring. People should can submit in. Uh, we've got scholarships for folks who are uh, young adults. Um, it's a place for academics and practitioners both. It's really about learning skills, getting together with people who care a lot about the intersection of art culture and religion, whatever your religious basis is, and saying, how can we artists, uh, poets, wow. playwrights, clergy uh, of all stripes, like learn from each other? How can we get this gathering space and ask these questions and be serious about intersectionality, about the way that supremacy shows up, not be afraid of naming those things and also saying naming them doesn't mean we can't keep going. We can't yeah. keep doing other things and figuring out what's next. Um, so artsreligionculture.org, ARC. It's a creative, creative collaborative for Theopoetics. We're really excited about it. You can find us on Facebook. Um, and my crew, uh, I couldn't do it without them. You know, they're, they're really at my, my board is really lifting me up. They're, they're charging me to get out and get stuff done. <laughs> um, and so uh, really shout out to them. And, and that's where you can find a lot of what I'm doing. Or if you want to come to BU while I'm banging away at my PhD, you let me know I'm probably in a library somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, the library. Yes, yes, man. Well, Khaled, this has been an uh, amazing conversation, man. And like I said, I'm going to post all these you know, links in, in, in the show notes and, and, and whatnot, man. But thank you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks you. And uh, so much for what you're doing. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really an honor to be, to be on the show because uh, you've got such an important perspective and you're going to bring in so many great folks and already have. So it, seriously, man, like uh, it's a it's total solid. I'm really, really grateful to be, to be here and be allowed to be on. Well, thank you, man. I, I definitely appreciate that, man. I definitely do. And like I said, we'll get you back, man. We're, this is, we're, just, we're just beginning, man. We're just, just getting this thing going, man. I'm already right. looking to season two. <laughs> well, thanks, Kevin. All right. I would like to add someone to our group here. Uh, professor Paul Weiss, a Sterling Professor of Philosophy at Yale. Were you able to listen to the show backstage? I heard from... a deal of it, but then I was behind the Boston Gate. Yes. So I heard only some of it. Did you hear anything that you disagreed with? I disagreed you... with a great deal of it. And uh, of course, it's a good deal I agree with. But I think uh, he's overlooking one very important matter, I think. Each one of us, I think, is terribly alone. He lives his own individual life. There's all kinds of obstacles in the way of religion or color or size or shape or lack of ability. And the problem is to become a man. But what I was discussing was not that problem, really. I was discussing the difficulties, the obstacles, the very, the very real danger of death thrown up by the society when a Negro, when a black man attempts to become a man. All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes it or perhaps exaggerates it. 
and therefore makes us for, uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a, a black scholar than I have with a white man who's against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or on religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself. You had to be able then to turn off all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to be a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, Everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. I never seen.